an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors, that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod. Or text Wondery Pod to 500 500. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't care. I never have, and I never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board Podcast, College Football Championship Weekend Edition. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one, the only Payne Insider and Payne. I got to ask, are you a little bit bittersweet going into championship weekend, knowing that the best team in the ACC as currently constructed will not be playing on Saturday? I'm a, it's a good thing you... Uh took a peek at the contracts and realized that I don't have to talk about that game now you know I have to be a man that understands what's written in black and white there are certain things that I can get you to do <laughs> there are certain things I can't and thankfully we have Brad to help us break down Clemson North Carolina later in the show we do have a busy action-packed edition planned for our listeners all five power five conferences broken down as in-depth and as eloquently as we know how to do. But before we get in all of that, you've got some winners we've got to announce from our Thanksgiving giveaway contest. Yeah, I mean, we always try and give back to the loyal listeners. It's just been amazing the amount of support that we've had since inception. It just continues to grow, and you know we don't have that distribution support, so it is literally all on you guys to listen to this, tell a friend, tell a coworker, tell your family, and, and we're greatly appreciative of that and so we had a nice little $300 cash giveaway for Thanksgiving the winners of those here we go the first at K Harward goes by the name his name's Kyle the second winner at football 961 Sean and at Gooner's Dream those are the three Twitter contest winners 100 bucks cash each we will reach out and DM you for some details and we'll ship you over the funds really appreciate everyone partaking in that contest and retweeting the podcast it goes a long way I know a lot of people say hey you know I might only have 47 followers or 74 followers why am I retweeting this but 
You might have a couple followers that follow you because they like the same things. And of course, it helps the Twitter algorithm. Doesn't matter how many followers you have. So greatly appreciated. We'll probably do another one around Christmas or New Year's. And uh, again, appreciate everyone participating in that. Grow the brand, grow the buzz. We do it for you guys, the loyal listeners, and you guys have made the community outstanding. Love the interactions on social media and across a variety of platforms. So if you can tell your friend, tell your coworkers, tell your family, tell your enemies, we can help continue to grow this brand into the behemoth it should be and increase our expansion into other spaces, much like we've already done this season. Payne, I know we got the uh, games to get into, college football playoff. I don't think there are any surprises, so it probably doesn't bear a deep dive discussion. So we may as well welcome in the third member of the Holy Trinity. He joins us every week here on the Bet the Board podcast. You, of course, can follow Brad Powers on Twitter. That's at Brad Power 7. And Brad, the magical mystery tour that is the college football regular season is officially in the rearview mirror. I have to ask a man that lives and breathes college football 365 days a year is championship weekend bittersweet or is it light at the end of the tunnel for all the heavy lifting you've done throughout the course of the off season and of course the season itself as always is a good question uh more light at the end of the tunnel i'm actually more intrigued uh i, I like to handicap bowl games especially bowl games the last couple of years uh, if you guess the motivation correctly they, they can be some very nice bets i'll put it that way but i i think the more in, intrigue as far as college football is the transfer portal uh the nil signing day coming up in a couple of weeks I, I mean i'm actually more intrigued about the next three weeks than i am about this championship week it's pretty wild when you look at the big names that are apparently on the move, not just at the head coaching position that we've seen with a coaching carousel. You mentioned transfer portal, quarterbacks already heading different spots, and it's amazing how hope springs eternal for some of these fan bases. Payne, I know I went back and forth with you with some of my friends that follow the Iowa football program closely. One of the names that they were potentially excited about sent chills down my spine when you start to believe that Cade McNamara can be the <laughs> guy to bring your offense into 2023 and beyond. Not exactly a ringing in endorsement but obviously plenty to keep tabs on throughout the course of the off season and we've seen how quickly some of these power programs have re- been rebuilt with transfers and the right head coaching hire which I think provides a perfect segue Brad right into the game we're going to see Friday night where suddenly the USC Trojans have their foot on the doorstep of potentially getting into the college football playoff in Lincoln Riley's first season a game that we'll see right here in our backyard at Allegiant Stadium where USC is a three-point favorite against the Utah U total on the game 68 had the back 12 not bagged divisions before the 2022 season this is a matchup that would never have been possible in the past and when you look at what's at stake the pac 12 has not had a participant in the college football playoff since 2016 when washington punched their ticket oregon back in 2014 the only other member of the league that was able to get into college football's final four meanwhile usc seeking their 40th conference title uh and would be their would be their first since a 12 win season back in 2008 when you're looking at Utah back-to-back conference titles since 2003-2004 in the Mountain West with Urban Meyer that would be on the table if they're able to pull the modest upset here so Brad I think the first question I have to ask about the Trojans we thought that they were potential upset victims each of the last couple of weeks they've exceeded odds makers expectations in both of those games Caleb Williams a heavy heavy favorite to win the Heisman Trophy have you been impressed with the way the Trojans have solidified their defense to give them a chance to play for all the marbles this weekend 
Yeah, I, I mean, I say that like that because while I see some progress, and I think it's more, you know, schematically that I was more impressed with what Alex Grinch was able to do scheme-wise with this slanting uh, of some of the angles on the defensive front against Notre Dame. I mean, USC won the line of scrimmage. That was stunning to me. Uh, you still allowed a Notre Dame quarterback last week, Drew Pine, to complete his first 15 passes. And really, if it wasn't for Pine making a couple of, of really bad mistakes, it wasn't like it was forced errors uh, on USC's behalf as far as the two turnovers. I mean, Notre Dame almost scores on every single time they have the ball. So, yes, there is some progress, but it's not saying much uh, because USC just a few weeks ago was one of the worst defenses, at least among any of the title contenders, by far the worst defense. I want to come right back to you, Brad, for a follow-up question, not just on USC-Utah and what that means, but rematches appear to be a pretty common theme that we're going to encounter championship weekend. Does the handicapping from your perspective change at all when teams already have played each other uh, earlier in the season? And then obviously with the stakes getting ratcheted up in this kind of spot, whether it be in the Pac-12, whether it be in the American Athletic and a variety of other conferences this weekend? If you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have said, yeah, revenge plays a factor into it. It doesn't really enter my thought process too much now. I think it gives you an opportunity to go back to that earlier meeting and see what the hell happened and how the two teams have changed since that game. And we can, we'll can we be diving into to that here in this handicap. But uh, the, the revenge factor or, or any of that doesn't really factor into a power rating for me. And the first meeting, of course, a game that took place October 15th in Salt Lake City. Utah ends up outlasting USC 43-42, handing the Trojans their only loss of the season. Trailing 42-35, Cam Rising rushed for a one-yard touchdown. And to Kyle Whittingham's credit, he went after it, took the two, and that was all she wrote. In that game, Rising finishes with 415 passing yards, two passing touchdowns, 60 yards on the ground, and three rushing touchdowns. Caleb Williams, no slouch either, 381 Passing yards himself, five passing touchdowns and did his fair share on the ground. The big storyline there, Dalton Kincaid going absolutely nuclear, 16 catches, 234 yards. And Lincoln Riley paying pretty quick to downplay the revenge angle and anything else that factors into it. But I'll throw it to you. When you're looking at these two football teams, the way they're currently constructed, which in your opinion is the one matchup you're most intrigued to watch that you think will ultimately decide who gets to the winner's circle as conference champion? This is going to be a a really interesting game because it feels like the two teams are trending a little bit differently. The first matchup six, seven weeks ago was just this complete dogfight game ended with Utah, obviously a one point winner. The advanced box score we had had the game ending in a tie. And you start to think about some of the things that were in play there, right? The game was played in Utah, one of the better home field advantages in college football and now you get a neutral site in Vegas, and you mentioned USC having revenge, and the Pac-12 wants nothing more than being represented in the college football playoff, and I would assume the refs allow USC to hold as much, if not more, than they did against Notre Dame, and that means it'll probably be tough for Utah to replicate the 40% pressure rate they got on Caleb Williams in the first game, and that, to me, was potentially one of the deciding factors here because if you look on drives where Utah didn't pressure Caleb Williams it was just a a layup drill for USC's offense and I think they're a little bit healthier now out wide Cam Rising also doesn't appear to be a hundred percent and you mentioned Dalton Kincaid at the top there 
probably impossible to match one of the greatest tight end performances in college football history. I mean, the guy had 16 catches, yes, but it was on 16 targets. That's That spells efficiency, right? I mean, 234 <laughs> yards and a touchdown. So if you also did some reading there, like Kincaid is, is battling an injury. So I don't think he's 100%. So where I'm kind of going with this is, most of the handicapping elements point to USC here, but I'm going to steal a page from Brad's book. My power number doesn't get remotely close to three. And so to this point, I haven't done anything with the game. And just, you know, looking at Utah and USC in an Excel sheet, if I was to pick some of these matchups, I think it'll surprise some people because everyone will talk about Caleb Williams and Cam Rising. That, that'll that be all the talk this week, no matter where you turn for coverage. I think it comes down to the two supporting ground games, right? I mean, Utah's defense has been bullied when they've stepped up in class. And when you adjust for schedule, Utah's defense is outside the top 100 in both yards per rush allowed and EPA per rush. And there's a reason, if you've watched some of these Utah games, Morgan Scully's gone to this five-man front at times. The problem is, you can't do that against USC because their passing game is too potent. And USC's rushing attack has been really the the unsung hero of the offense. Quietly, you know, USC's top five in schedule-adjusted EPA per rush and success rate. And it's the ground game that kind of opens some things up for Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams in the pass game defensively on the other side right USC is also outside the top 100 and basically every schedule adjusted run metric you can think of Utah top 10 in rushing success rate top 20 in EPA per rush Tavion Thomas we know is no longer part of the program but the Utes are using this three-headed rotation now with Jackson Bernard and Glover and all those guys are basically fresh anytime they're in the game so to me those are some of the important factors here that's just kind of how i'm thinking about this game there's so many things that stack in usc's favor except the price you're you know effectively paying fillet prices for a skirt steak in hopes that it's a5 wagyu here and i think ultimately that's what everyone believes usc is once they face Georgia, I think we're going to find out that, that USC is very much a skirt stake. <laughs> well, that may be a uh, overstatement of what USC is, and I think you're underselling the importance of skirt stake in the pecking order or pyramid uh, of stakes. When you look at Utah defensively, guys... You are a skirt stake guy, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I feel like I, you've it, ordered that in front of there you. There is before. nothing better sometimes <laughs> when you want to mix things up with a chimichurri skirt stake or something along those lines. I mean, I'd probably have that significantly higher than flank steak or the stakes that used to serve you in the dining hall back in college that wasn't even close to steak but when you look at utah defensively there's no doubt nothing wrong with a little college mystery meat yeah uh I mean, whatever it takes to soak up the alcohol first thing on a Sunday morning. Utah defensively, uh, and the numbers tell a very different story than what the eye test shows. Clearly a group nowhere near as dominant as what we saw a season ago. You guys highlighted a lot of the injury concerns. And Brad, I guess the final question I have for you on this game, we know where the number closed when Utah played USC in Salt Lake City. Rice-Eccles, especially after dark, can be one of the more difficult places to play west of the Mississippi. How much have the power numbers on both of these teams changed for you over the last six to eight weeks so obviously you know I've downgraded Utah a little bit even downgraded them a little bit in that game because I thought it was such a home run spot the fact that they needed a two-point conversion basically in the final minute to, to, to win the game uh, but it was a slight downgrade in that game alone and uh, then obviously Utah coming up short 
Um, and a few other key spots. I think the UCLA game was just prior to the USC. Oregon uh, didn't take advantage of a banged-up Bo Nix. So slight downgrade from Utah, even though they have dominated the, a lot of their other opponents. A lot The Stanfords and the Arizonas of the world uh, are not moving the needle too much for me. USC I have upgraded. Uh, I mean, at the middle point of the season when it was turnover luck, I mean, you're talking about a team that was on the road at Oregon State, was plus four in turnovers and still didn't cover a, a short you know, point spread. Uh, so uh, since that point, and specifically the last two weeks, I've upgraded USC a couple of points since that time. Amazing, Brad. My beloved Beavers aren't even playing this weekend. You're firing pot shots indirectly at a team that didn't throw a forward pass for 22 minutes in the second half of the Civil War, yet still was able to erase a three-touchdown deficit and cash tickets for folks on a live money line at 20-1. to But uh, you look at USC, no doubt you guys highlighted a team trending in the right direction, and we'll see if they can complete the final step of their journey en route to a college football playoff. On to Saturday we go, and the Big 12 Championship will take center stage at Jerry's World an early 11 a.m. Central kickoff. And TCU finds themselves a two-and-a-half point favorite total in the game, 62-and-a-half. We hit the rewind button when these teams played in Fort Worth. It was TCU closing as a three-and-a-half point chalk, erasing a 28-to-10 deficit, shutting Kansas State out in the second half. When you look at TCU and you shop around throughout the market, heavy, heavy favorites to make the college football playoff, which surprised me a little bit. Kansas State already an inside track to the Sugar Bowl. They get there with an automatic bid if they win the conference and a lot of talk that even if they were to lose to TCU that that is fait accompli when you look at TCU this they've been one of the better teams against the spread this year 9-2-1 overall the only teams better in that regard Oregon State and the Tulane Green Wave when you look at TCU they're seeking their first Big 12 championship game win and first outright Big 12 championship Overall, they won the Big 12 as co-champions with Baylor back in 2014. This would be a first outright conference title for the program since 2011 when they won the Mountain West three years in a row. Meanwhile, Kansas State, they're seeking their first Big 12 title since 2012, co-champions with Oklahoma then, and first Big 12 championship game win since 2003 when they boat raced the Oklahoma Sooners. Brad, we talked about the first meeting for Utah-USC. We can talk about the first meeting for this one that obviously came with a much different dynamic. Kansas State races out to that early lead. Will Howard leaves the game in favor of T.J. Rubley before coming back. And that was probably the game that opened my eyes with how explosive TCU's offense could be, even when they stepped up in class against Big 12 competition. Certainly. And the guy, obviously, I think Max Duggan was a pretty known commodity. And obviously, he's been, you know, maybe even surprisingly, a really good fit for Sonny Dykes' offense. I mean, Sonny Dykes didn't even believe in him all offseason because, I mean, obviously, Max Duggan didn't start the opening game. Uh, the, the guy that's really stepped to the forefront for me is the, the running back, uh, Miller, who I think is one of the more underrated running backs in the country, even though his name's become a little bit more widely popular now. And, and then, obviously, when healthy, they do have a first round caliber at least built 6'4 215 Johnston when healthy is one of the more dynamic wide receivers so uh, look we know Sonny Dykes is known for offense I'm just surprised with a program that was defensive oriented uh, for much of the last two decades that the transition has been pretty seamless here for the Horn Frogs 
Uh, honestly, Brad, I thought this could be a great fit. Sonny didn't have to change his address, was moving across town and across conferences <laughs> yeah. from SMU, and clearly they've hit the ground running. And while everyone wants to laud USC and Lincoln Raleigh for flipping the script on a 4-8 and eight season last year, this is more impressive because he's essentially doing it with the same talent. And when you yeah. look at TCU, they're plus 107 in second-half scoring margin this season, outscoring their opponents 250-143. to 143. TCU's five ranked wins are more than the number of com- – Un- combined rank wins that the other two undefeated teams in Georgia and Michigan have accomplished this season. But Payne, you get the outlier numbers like last week against Iowa State, where it looks like it was a Picasso on the scoreboard with a 62-14 victory. But I think it's extremely rare when you get a 48-point margin on the scoreboard and you're only plus 47 in total net yardage. Yeah, I mean, that's been pretty much the synopsis of TCU, right? And at least for the time being, the market is telling you Kansas State's the side here. There's very few instances over the years where you have a story like TCU with a couple elite players sticking around and buying into a new coaching staff and regime that goes 12-0, and and you're knocking off more prestigious programs like Texas and Oklahoma, and you don't have to pay a premium to back them. And you just think back, right? This game closed three and a half under the lights at TCU. TCU wins and covers. And the market's still giving us a true line here, right? There's no inflation in a Power 5 standalone championship game for some reason. It's because of the things that you just mentioned that continue to transpire in some of these TCU games. Where do you want to lead us, though, in terms of the breakdown in the matchups? Oh, I mean, I think when we talk about TCU and what they've done offensively this year, I mean, Brad mentioned Max Duggan. He talked about some of the skill position players, and Kendra Miller been outstanding. I mean, essentially scores a touchdown as soon as he gets off the bus every single week. Kansas State defensively leaves a little to be desired on that side. So I think it might be more fascinating to start with the offensive side, knowing that Kansas State has gone through a little bit of a change uh, in overall offensive identity. With Adrian Martinez getting hurt, Will Howard has stepped in and filled in quite admirably, giving this team a ton of big play potential. Now, if you do your reading, you listen to Chris Kleiman, there is potential for Adrian Martinez to be back with the team in a limited capacity this weekend. Said he'd be foolish not to use a package of sorts to get him involved. But when you look at Kansas State offensively matched up against TCU on the defensive side, do you see edges or opportunity other than giving Deuce Vaughn the ball 55 times where Kansas State can keep (laughs) TCU honest? Yeah, You mentioned it looking a little different, and I think it will with Will Howard. You know, he's at least been working with the guys the last three weeks as opposed to just kind of being thrown into the fire in the first matchup. He's a completely different quarterback than Adrian Martinez, and I think... You know, he does have that advantage of just preparing for one defense all week. You mentioned Deuce Vaughn. Obviously, he's very important. He's one of the most valuable players in the entire country, and Kansas State has to get the ground game going. And even though we've seen spots where TCU stepped up defensively, right, the Texas game where they were able to kind of shut down B. John Robinson, the Frogs are still outside the top 65 in both rushing success rate and percentage of explosive runs allowed. Kansas State's fringe top 30 in EPA per rush. So Deuce Vaughn has to get going in this game where there really isn't a clear path. But if Kansas State can run it well enough. It's going to open some things up in the past game. And TCU, while the secondary has been pretty good down to down, they've been really prone to giving up the deep shot outside the top 65 in yards per pass allowed and outside the top 85 in explosive passing. So they do give up some chunk plays through the pass game. The other thing that's going to be critical here is when Kansas State does get in to the money territory, they just have to finish drives. 
And if you look at Kansas State, the one thing that's kind of led their offense to being maybe a little bit better than they are down to down is they're very good situationally, right? They turn these quality possessions into points. They're averaging 4.7 points per trip inside the 40. TCU defensively outside the top 75 and allowing opponent points when they enter the 40-yard line. So there is a path here to points. You mentioned the potential wrinkles. There's been some whispers. There could be a couple packages for Adrian Martinez to utilize his legs. We'll see. But you're right. This has to be a full 60 minutes from Kansas State here. And you go back to that first matchup, Kansas State averaged 11.7 yards per play the first 26 plays, 3.2 the final 27 plays, partly adjustments by TCU, partly playing a third-string quarterback that we hope we don't actually see in this game. But there are some paths here for Kansas State to have some offensive success. When you have a chance to bring a third-string quarterback into a game in hostile territory, there's no doubt you have to throw the ball across the hashes in a slow-developing play with questionable arm strength (laughs) when you have the chance if you're Kansas State this game. One injury (laughs) Worth highlighting for TCU on the defensive side of the ball. Sonny Dykes addressed it in his press conference earlier this week, talking about the hamstring for their leading tackler, Johnny Hodges. Very curious to see his level of effectiveness because he seems to be in on everything when you're talking about playing downhill with a run defense. You guys highlighted TCU, and I can make the case that their defensive backs, probably the more most unheralded position group of any program in the Big 12 and what they've been able to accomplish. Brad, in terms of overall power numbers, when we look at TCU, this was a team talked about as a potential dark horse. I don't think anybody anticipated that they would be 12-0 and on the cusp of a perfect season. You look at how they performed in the betting market at 9-2-1 ATS, and we keep looking to try and find ways to bet against them because we don't think metrically that's supported. Has the market moved far enough, or is this just the day and age we're in where, hey, look, TCU you is what they are, are metrically we're going to hang numbers accordingly and books just flat out don't give a damn if the general public backs them every single week almost blindly i think it's more the latter uh and look i've upgraded tcu as much as you know any team in the country i think duke illinois are, are only a few of the other teams that i've upgraded more uh, since the start of the season I mean, it's just not the, the, the 9 2 and one ATS record. I mean, they are getting margin as well. I mean, it's almost 10 points per game on average. And even their two games that they didn't cover were less than three points in both of them, including the Baylor game where you're, again, very short number, market on top of it that TCU is not at least statistically as dominant as their win-loss record. I mean, they're laying two. <laughs> they win by one. It's one of their non-covers. Uh I think the reason why you you have two things in play here. Obviously, public sees relatively short numbers. They don't care. They see an unbeaten team. They're laying it with TCU, and they're winning. Why, why wouldn't you? And you win every week with TCU if you're backing them. But more the professionals. I hate using the method, but there's probably is a thought process. I uh, the do factor <laughs> TCU is, you know, cannot, it's not sustainable. And even last week when you think, Oh, they really clicked for TCU on the scoreboard. The stats said otherwise for what the 10th time in 12 games that the, the, the final score was much disparate from what the box score and the true score should have been. So, uh, I'll say this, even though I've lost a lot going against TCU, I'm waiting and interested to see where this market goes because obviously one little tick to that very key number would, uh, and I'm sure I'm not alone here, would uh, involve me getting involved in the game. 
<laughs> yeah, I think the last time we made a case for TCU in any of these games, Payne, may have been their contest against Oklahoma State. That's the one where the numbers eventually catch up to them. They close a four-point favorite, win 43-40, and we see the trajectory that those two teams have taken over the last six to eight weeks. It's just fascinating to watch how the betting market responds to some of these teams, and we'll see if TCU is able to complete complete the improbable run getting to the college football playoff you can follow brad on twitter at brad power seven you of course can follow Payne there as well at Payne insider i'm todd Furman. follow me on social media and most importantly as always follow the podcast at bet the board pod and we talk about injury we talk about intrigue and there's probably no greater illustration of that this weekend as far as conference championships are concerned than what we're going to see unfold in troy alabama at veterans memorial stadium where troy welcomes in Coastal Carolina. Troy, more than a touchdown favorite, hovering in that eight and a half range, down a touch from where it peaked at 11, 11 and a half earlier in the week, total at 48 and a half. And Brad, this number obviously on the move back and forth all week already, given the uncertainty around Coastal Carolina's starting quarterback, Grayson McCall, who's been out for a couple weeks. They said that foot should potentially keep him sidelined upwards of three to six weeks. We're probably a little bit earlier in the recovery cycle. But while Coastal has kind of become the gold standard over the last couple years with McCall under center and what Jamie Chadwell has done coaching up a lot of this talent. Troy defensively has put on an absolute clinic almost week in, week out. And unless you're a diehard college football fan, you probably don't understand how good and how stingy this Trojans defense has been throughout the course of conference play. It has been, and it's a story probably not getting enough publicity. I mean, I can make a strong case that had the Hail Mary not happened at App State, Troy would be going possibly for the the, the big bowl game uh, the, uh, as far as the, the New Year's Six uh, because they would be – they had won 11. They, if that wouldn't have happened, they would have won 11 straight games going for a 12th straight here. Their only loss would have been the season opener against Ole Miss. So, that, look, at that level of football – it's tough to find consistency, but you mentioned it. For a first-year coaching staff to have that defensive side of the ball in the shape that they've been all year, and let's just be perfectly honest, I mean, it's elite, at least at the group of five level, that defense. Offense leaves a little bit to be desired, and you know it's my one major concern as far as the ability for them to get margin. They haven't consistently gotten margin, uh, even with that great defense, but uh, I, I think it's a really good spot here for Troy. And uh, if we can get into it as far as the injury front on the other side of the ball goes. Yeah, and I think that's probably a great place to start because when you look at Grayson McCall, the easy $100 million question is, what is Grayson McCall worth to the point spread? And Payne, you and I have deliberated the value of elite starting quarterbacks in group of five programs over the last handful of years, not just from an on-field productivity standpoint, but what they mean in the locker room and everything else. So Brad, when you see a player that's been as valuable as maybe any in all of college football, with Coastal having a chance to win 10 games for the third straight season, knowing that McCall has been that catalyst, when healthy, what is he worth the number? And how do you go about making those adjustments if he's out there come Saturday, but potentially a shell of his normal self? Yeah, it's the question for this game. So maybe I'm a little conservative, and I would like to hear what your guys' you know, point value is. But I would say seven points, and I think that's maybe even on the light side. I think more people are aggressive with some of these quarterbacks, maybe even as high as 10. I'm just not there. But, you know, him out of the lineup to him 100% healthy in the lineup, about seven-point uh, difference for me. Yeah, I mean, Payne, and I can kind of bounce it to you as well. Uh, I mean, 
I think seven honestly feels light. I mean, having watched Coastal the last couple of weeks, I know they were extremely close against USM and how the market responded there from 11.5 down to 4.5 uh, ends up coming in right around that number. Last week, you kind of get a throwaway data point against JMU. People bet that game like they already knew the final score with that number approaching 16.5 uh, at a lot of shops. And Coastal, because they don't have a clear backup, you know, I would make the case that it may be closer to 10. Now, I'm not sure that's truly reflected in this number here because I would still make Troy a favorite in this spot, even if McCall was 100%. But where do you come down uh, on what you have McCall being worth potentially to the point spread here? Yeah, so we're using eight. And I think to Brad's point, you always want to be a, a little conservative in that assessment. And I know I got my balls busted when referencing Florida State's quarterback situation with Jordan Travis down to Tate Rodermaker being worth 10 points. And although we don't see it in that one specific small sample size of two quarters, anyone going to debate that still right at this moment? (laughs) I mean, the way Jordan Travis has played, it's just so what I have seen from Coastal here depicts maybe even something larger than eight points. And you just think about the matchup in this game and if Coastal's going to throw the ball where they've really been quite successful that's Troy's best attribute is their pass defense and Coastal hasn't really been able to move the ball all that efficiently on the ground but the one element of Troy they've really limited explosive runs so it's a good matchup from that perspective I guess the only question would be at this point is the market in and of itself. We've seen some dumb things happen, right? Because Troy opens as low as four and a half and everyone believes Grayson calls out. We tip to what, 11, 11 and a half at peak. Yep. And now all of a sudden there's been this discussion of we think Grayson McCall's going to try and play and we're at eight and a half. We know he's not going to be 100%, but what does the market do when he officially gets upgraded on the screen? And so I think we could probably only trend lower And that might create some value on Troy at that point if the market dips below the key number of seven. And we all know he's not going to be 100% with this foot injury. Maybe that's when you step into Troy. I just don't know if like this is the specific time to go because if he gets upgraded on the screen, it's inevitably going to move this game. It's yeah, it's so interesting. Obviously, when you look at the way Coastal has performed, even last week against JMU, I mean, Jamie Chadwell deserves a ton of credit for their early game scripts. They come out, they put together crooked numbers early on in games, and they've kind of fizzled out on the conference road. You look at their performance. Thankfully for us uh, at Monroe, when we took Louisiana Monroe plus the 14 as a podcast best bet, Coastal isn't able to do much after the break with a healthy McCall. You saw something very similar even at home against USM with a backup quarterback and against Marshall earlier this year year so so much of it is schematic but I think this is clearly a step up in class not the kind of defense you're accustomed to facing within the Sun Belt uh, given what Troy has brought to the table and and Brad I guess the other part of this handicap that I have to ask you about before we kind of pivot away from it all sorts of buzz about Jamie Chadwell potentially taking a job outside of Myrtle Beach South Carolina has been one of the hottest names in the coaching carousel for the last couple of off seasons does that factor into the handicap at all or do you think in a one game setting what he's meant to this program program and players that they can kind of put that distraction behind them to a similar extent what we saw from Ole Miss against Mississippi State more so than what we saw from Liberty who got boat raced last week by New Mexico State yeah uh although Ole Miss still lost uh, I mean and they lost their last two games with distractions and Liberty that wasn't a good look with that I would say 
that it's it's something that if you're not putting it into your handicap, I think you're making a mistake. I'm not saying it's worth a lot, but it certainly I don't think is a positive because you know a lot of reports are saying he is the odds-on favorite to to be the next USF coach. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a good sign if a guy is one foot out the door. I know it meant a, it means a lot to to close this off finally with a Sun Belt championship, this three-year run for Coastal. One thing I will say is maybe their record looks similar to the last two years' additions, but when you do dive into Coastal, even with a majority of the season with Grayson McCall, it's nowhere near as good as the last two years. I mean, this is a team that's been outgained, uh, yards per play negative. Uh, I, I just don't see it. I mean, you look at second-order win total, which is basically an advanced metric that, that says, you know, uses advanced st- statistics and, you know, gives a win probability and compares it to the actual outcome of the game. It says this team is more like a six-and-a-half win type of team instead of a nine-and-two team. So uh, add all that together and the question marks about Grayson McCall's health status has me obviously on the Troy side here. And I'll pivot back to what Payne mentioned. I do believe once it hits that down best screen and he's officially in, we'll see seven, maybe. We're not going to see six and a half. Boy, if we see six and a half, I'm already heavily involved in this one. I'm telling you seven is a major go for me. Uh, Six and a half would be, I would have the biggest bet of the year on top of already having a monster bet on Troy in this game. C.J. Maribel and Isaiah Likely aren't walking through that door for the Chanticleers (laughs) to try and help their offense come Saturday. Uh, One last question I have for you, Brad, and pain kills me when I ask these, relatively speaking, hot take questions, but I don't feel it's such. When you look at Coastal, from Grayson McCall to what they have at quarterback, bigger downgrade than what Fresno State was when they lost Jake Hayner for an extended period of time and had to go to Logan Fife? It is a bigger downgrade, especially with them, you know, trotting out the younger guy. Carpenter's had plenty of experience. I know he can't throw the football, but he at least can run it, and it started many games in his career. So I'm a little surprised that they have kind of used this as more towards the future. But, yeah, it's probably the biggest downgrade in college football, at, at least. I mean, unless, you know... obviously we haven't seen Caleb Williams go out of the lineup or or Drake May, but uh, at least at the group of five level, there's no one more valuable. Yeah, it's a great point talking about Coastal knowing that they've used two backups and if they'd lean on a veteran and Carpenter to run the football a little bit more, shorten the game, should McCall not be effective uh, going into hostile territory against a stingy defense where the last thing you want to do is create a short field and allow those fans to rally behind their team. All right, from group of five football, gentlemen, to big boy football being played in Atlanta, where Georgia is a 17.5-point favorite against LSU in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Total on the game, 51. And the SEC championship game has been played since 1992. It's UGA's 10th appearance, a 3-6 and six record, with their wins coming in 2002, 2005, and 2017. Surprisingly enough for the Bulldogs, given everything they've been able to accomplish in college football over the last three seasons, the one thing that eludes them is an SEC conference championship. Meanwhile, LSU will make their seventh appearance in the big game, 5-1 and one record with wins coming. Mo- 2001, 2003, 2007, 11, and most recently 2019 in route to their national championship. In that game, LSU absolutely steamrolled Georgia, and it's not lost on some of the UGA seniors who are willing to share their feelings about that. More on that in a minute. When you look at 
Georgia. I mean, this is a team that's been a double-digit favorite in every game this season. They're 3-0 ATS when favored by fewer than 20 points. Meanwhile, LSU, not a huge sample size by any stretch, and this obviously precedes Brian Kelly's arrival there in Baton Rouge. LSU 3-1 as a big dog, 4-0 ATS in the last four games as a double-digit pup. It does include beating Alabama outright at Tiger Stadium earlier this season. Brad, first things first, when you talk about the Georgia Bulldogs and where they were to close out last year versus where they are now, can you walk us through the progression and how you've adjusted their power rating either up or down throughout the course of this season? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously last year's team historically great on the defensive side of the ball, but, you know, coming into this season, they did lose 15 total players to the NFL draft more than anybody, at least in the, in the common draft era since 1967. So, you know, I downgraded coming into this season, Georgia, about a touchdown compared to where they were at the end of last season, even with all those great recruiting classes and Stetson Bennett back at quarterback. Since the start of the season, there has been an upgrade. Georgia, I mean, you got to respect the fact that they were able to go 12 and no. Uh, it hasn't been a significant one, but a couple of points has been the upgrade for me. There has been multiple games where they've struggled. Kent State, Missouri, Kentucky, heck, even last week, uh, you know, I had a pretty big uh, disparity between my power rating and the actual line on the game, and they came up short in a rivalry game. So it, they've been upgraded, and they're number one in my power ratings, but it, it hasn't been a significant upgrade. Payne, who knew when we were watching these very same Bayou Bengals take on your beloved Florida State Seminoles back in week <laughs> one, how important that game was going to be to set the tone, set the pace for where those two teams were uh, as we got later in the season. When you look at this game, we know about Georgia and Brad talked about their defense dropping off a little bit from what they were last year. They don't look to be, and this is going to sound like I'm taking a pot shot, but they don't look to be as fast and as athletic or as dominant uh, as what we saw. We've seen the fits and spurts of them struggling last week. Uh, you know, perfect illustration against Georgia Tech. They give up six plays of more than 20 yards, but they seem to play down to their competition. The players have talked about the importance of this game. They remember when LSU curb stomped them a few years ago. When you begin to look at where Georgia has some matchups, offensively, do you believe in your boy Stetson Bennett going out there, throwing for 400 yards, running for 150, and Georgia hanging 60 on this Tigers defense? Yeah, that's... uh... It's going to be tough matching some of those numbers you just spouted there. Ultimately, you know, the the question comes down to wanting to lay three scores in a game where Georgia doesn't need margin late. And you kind of reference, right, Georgia hasn't gotten margin on Kentucky or Georgia Tech. They didn't cover against Florida. Didn't seem to care to want to completely break Tennessee's neck either when they could have. So that's a concern if you want to lay a number like this full game. My feeling, though, is is Todd Munkin at least opens this game with, with the goods, right? SEC championship on the line. You referenced not being able to win this game in recent years. You have the new kid on the block making some waves and recruiting in the South. Like, let's, let's give LSU the goods early. Georgia's offense, I think, finds some success, right? If the dogs want to play bully ball in the trenches, that should work. LSU's defense is outside the top 85 in both schedule adjusted rushing success rate and EPA per rush allowed. If that happens, LSU is really going to be off balance. We've kind of seen Todd Monk, and to your point, Todd, trust Spencer Bennett in some of these big games early on, letting him throw the ball to open up the ground game. And if you look at LSU defensively, the secondary's played better than people think. 
better than projections, but they've been gashed with the explosive pass. And on passing downs, when you have to get a stop through the air, LSU hasn't been able to do it. Outside the top 80 in passing down success rate allowed, LSU hasn't been good on early downs either, right? Outside the top 50 in early down EPA when you adjust for schedule. So for me, like the way LSU's defense eats, it's by getting pressure. And you have to stop the run and put offenses in known situations to kind of earn the right to get after the quarterback. And I just don't think that happens here often enough with with Georgia's ability to run the ball and their ability to pass protect. That's the other thing, right? Stetson Bennett's been pressured on 17% of dropbacks. He gets the ball out on time. Georgia's offensive line is damn good in protection as well. So LSU's best attribute on defense should be pretty much negated here. If Jordan, if Georgia cares enough, right, like they'll get margin. But again, like the price is no bargain on the full game. And I don't really want to be running to lay three scores when a team that doesn't always keep its foot on the gas doesn't really require margin here. It's very much just kind of get on to the college football playoff. And and that makes me a little nervous, right? You just think about this game, even if you're up 24 in the fourth quarter, right? There's there's that opportunity for the back door. And again, we just haven't seen Kirby want to shut that door all the time. When you look at this Georgia offense, I mean, I think both of you guys highlighted some of the areas where they've been very good. And Kenny Kenny McIntosh has more or less been a revelation in the ground game, became just the second running back in two decades at UGA to rush for at least 600 yards and have at least 400 receiving yards, showing his dual threat ability, joins Todd Gurley, who accomplished that feat back in 2013. And when you look at what McIntosh has done in recent weeks, 177 yards rushing and receiving in their 37-14 win against Georgia Tech last week and against Kentucky, 162 yards from scrimmage as well. Brian Kelly talked about Brock Bowers and how difficult it is to slow down all of the athletes that Georgia has in their tight end room. But Brad, LSU may have a concern in their own right, and that's with their starting quarterback, Jaden Daniels. I know Brian Kelly said he expects him to be fine, but last time I checked, a player isn't wearing a walking boot on Monday if everything (laughs) is A-OK. Yeah, I think that's the question here. I, I know I, Payne addressed the question on the other side. Does Georgia want margin? And I think it's a legitimate question. The question on this side of the ball is the health status of Jaden Daniels. I expect him to play because he is a guy that would be a significant – if he's out of the lineup, I'm work, we're cruising to 21 here because it's a significant drop-off to Nussmeyer. Jaden Daniels uh, has been – you talk about a, a revelation. He's been a revelation, at least for LSU in the run game. He's by far their, their leading rusher. And I said it early on in the season, the transformation for this LSU offense was their best play at the start of the season was basically a Jaden Daniels scramble on third and long. Uh, and then, you know, the RPR, RPO started working more. They've had some running back injuries. Looks like the, the leading uh, running back will be back for this game. But if you're te- – and it's a foot injury, the, a foot and ankle injury for him from last week. If you take him out of the ru- quarterback run game, I, I don't see a pathway to a lot of success for an LSU offense here, particularly even with a mobile quarterback. We're talking about an LSU offensive line that's allowed 41 sacks this season going up against a Georgia defensive front that is clearly different with Jalen Car- Carter in the lineup after he missed a few games at the start of the year. I just if you if you told me he's a hundred percent, then seventeen and a half I think is way too many. If you told me eighty percent, I could still be talked into uh, an LSU bet here. If he can't be u- utilized effectively in the run game, I, I, the number might even be short here on Georgia's side. That, that's how important Jane Daniels is. 
You know, Payne, when you look at Georgia defensively, I mean, they allow four and a half yards per play. That's top five in the FBS. They're allowing less than 80 yards rushing per game, number one in the country. Red zone efficiency, they're tops in that regard. It's always interesting because I think all of us that watch college football on a week-in, week-out basis go, yeah, this 2022 Georgia defense isn't anywhere close uh, to what we saw last year en route to that elusive national championship. But then you look at some of the counting stats and everything else. The defense is doing what's asked of it. Uh, and to Brad's point, he mentioned some of the key contributors. Uh, does LSU have a path to offensive success to keep this game competitive? I don't see one. And I think there's another interesting element here, and it really didn't dawn on me until about last night when I just started looking at this schedule. You know, Brian Kelly's obviously exceeded expectations in year one, and you could visually see the buy-in from players he didn't recruit and the uptick in performance that it led to on the field. You could literally watch it from week to week. And, you know, you just go back to what we talked about on the other side. Like, there's just not this reason for Georgia to get margin here and, you know, taking three scores worth of points could probably be attractive to some. And and my core number doesn't get to 18, right? Like, but there are multiple reasons here. Georgia opened as low as 14 and a half and it's now as high as 18. And I just, again, go back to looking at this schedule from a win total perspective, like LSU exceeded theirs. Sure. But what team on their schedule aside from Florida state in the opener was markedly better than expectation, right? Like Mississippi state, pretty neutral. We thought Auburn would be bad. They were even worse. (laughs) The Vols are the lone exception, and LSU got trounced at home by Tennessee as a a two-and-a-half-point dog. Right? Florida's worse than projections. Ole Miss, we told you, was a fraud, and they'd be lucky to win one game down the stretch. They won one game down the stretch. Alabama, down relative to expectation. Arkansas, down. Texas A&M, way down. So suddenly this LSU resume and how they've played in these games isn't as impressive as it looks on the surface and even what I thought it to be. The second here we've covered at nauseum, right? It's Jaden Daniels' health. If you watched the A&M game, it didn't look good. Brian Kelly came out and said, hey, at least it's not a high ankle sprain Uh, and that he'd expect Daniels back. I mean, but he's been in a boot and that is his very best attribute is, is the legs. And then you just look at the rest of the matchup. Like, LSU wants to be able to run the ball. A lot of their efficiency, is, as we mentioned, right, comes from Jaden Daniels' legs, whether it's the impromptu scramble or it's creating that extra man advantage in the zone read. Georgia's top three in the country in schedule-adjusted rushing success rate and yards per rush allowed. LSU's offense plays in a phone booth, right? And you just look at even their passing game. Yes, Jaden Daniels has been a little bit more efficient. He's getting the ball out on time. He understands the offense and where the ball needs to go most of the time now. But the Tigers passing game, 75th in schedule adjusted yards per pass and 97th in explosive pass percentage. So you can't play Georgia's defense in a phone booth. And that's kind of the concern here. And then, you know, you go back to something I said when Georgia played Tennessee, and that was the underlying factor to me. It was Kirby Smart getting the answers to the test from Nick Saban. Tennessee had played Alabama and had success. Kirby could dissect that film all week and see what not to do. Kirby is obviously right. Comes from the Saban coaching tree. They run similar concepts defensively. The same thing applies here. Kirby is going to get the answers to the test again. LSU played Alabama a month ago, upset the tide, had success on offense. Kirby is going to watch that piece of film more than any other this week, and he's going to know exactly what to do 
and what not to do. And I think ultimately, if Georgia wants to get margin again, they will. And there's probably better ways to to attack this game if you did want Georgia. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the things you guys highlighted make a ton of sense because I came into this with a similar mindset going, you know, Georgia can go through the motions and they can get themselves ready for the college football playoff. But then you read some of the players' comments about 2019. You read some of the comments about they've accomplished a ton, but they haven't won an SEC championship. And then you dig into how unhappy Kirby was with the lethargic effort that he's seen, not just last week against Georgia Tech, but the week before against Kentucky. You want to make sure you're clicking on all cylinders going into some of the biggest games of the season. So I'd expect... Georgia to have a game plan, try and go out there and execute it, especially early on in this particular contest. All right, gentlemen, from the SEC to the ACC, and Brad Payne may try and act like a diva. He's not contractually obligated to talk about <laughs> conference championship games that don't include the team's top team in the conference. And in the ACC, it's North Carolina and Clemson in Charlotte at Bank of America Stadium with Clemson slightly more than a touchdown favorite. Total on the game, 63 and a half. The ACC title game played since 2005. Clemson will make their ninth appearance. They're 7-1, and one, including six straight wins from 2015 to 2020. Most appearances and titles of any school. Meanwhile, UNC will make their second appearance. They lost to Clemson 45-37 back in 2015 and they are searching for their first ACC conference crown since 1980. When you look at North Carolina, though, Brad, they step up in class at number 10 or 11, depending on what poll you actually put stock in. Clemson now represents North Carolina's first-ranked opponent of the 2022 season. The Tar Heels are the only team in the ACC this season not to have faced a team ranked in either the AP or coaches poll at the time of the game. It's amazing in this day and age, you can navigate through a power five conference schedule and have so many fortuitous bounces. North Carolina danced between the raindrops, but over the last couple of weeks, Brad, whether it's Drake May hitting a wall or something else going on in Chapel Hill, hard to explain what we've seen offensively from UNC. Not so much against NC State, who we know is one of the stingier defenses in the league, but that performance two weeks ago in Georgia Tech remains one of the more inexplicable ones that we've seen all season. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear rumors that there might be a possible coaching change as far as the, the play calling goes uh, for North Carolina. To me, at least from what I've seen in both games, I just think the entire you know first eight, nine, ten games of the season were basically on Drake May, go play, you know, make a play, go win a game for us. And here, here's a guy that's still relatively young in his career, just, you know, he's running out of gas he's running on fumes I mean you don't believe me <laughs> look look at the, the stats I mean not only running but also passing I, I look more at the running because I think it's probably his most underrated aspect of him I mean he had six straight games with 50 plus rush yards Re- really makes him tough to defend uh, last two weeks 13 rushing yards 32 rushing yards uh, and obviously it's transitioning to him and Billy uh, somehow he's inaccurate now all of a sudden 57 percent completion percentage what you know one two ratio the last two weeks and uh, he's certainly not the, the the player that we thought should have been easily uh, sitting there in New York when it's all said and done for the Heisman Trophy so I mean the, the whole team rests on his shoulders and, and when he's playing like that well North Carolina shows their true colors and that's this is not even a top 40 team maybe a borderline top 50 team uh, with Drake May playing like an average quarterback when he plays great they can win close games when he doesn't well they lose close games even against questionable competition 
Yeah, I mean, Drake May, I mean, we knew he was highly touted coming in. Dabo talked at great lengths about how Clemson tried to recruit him years ago, but knew he was UNC legacy, his brother having played basketball uh, for the Tar Heels as well. And when you look, Payne, at North Carolina's offense, I mean, Brad's highlighting some of the things that I've seen with my own eyes over the last couple of weeks. And then you get Phil Longo coming out basically saying, yeah, we didn't know how to attack what NC State was going to do defensively uh, against us when they dropped eight. I don't want to oversimplify a defensive game plan when it comes to playing North Carolina, <laughs> but Christ, drop eight. He wasn't, drop he wasn't eight. sure North Carolina State was going to do exactly what they always do. Yeah, I mean, drop eight, <laughs> double-team Josh Downs, and uh, UNC is going to be lucky to get to 14 or 17 points. Clemson clearly has the personnel, and while they do have questions that abound in their secondary, they should be able to get pressure with their defensive front. So, you know, listen, games like this are always tough because – there's a level of of mental gymnastics trying to figure out which of the falling knives is best to catch here (laughs) and you know North Carolina's obviously dropped two straight and you guys have have mentioned that and you know after getting some Heisman hype Drake Mays played in the worst two games of the season back to back it's amazing that didn't transpire one game earlier but we kind of saw it coming (laughs) and now of course microcosm of the college football (laughs) season hey we know he's going to fall off a cliff he just waited one more week to fall off a cliff And and if you're reading some things like Phil Longo's suddenly on the hot seat, I can tell you uh, the guy's an absolute maniac, so it doesn't really surprise me. Um, and then for Clemson, obviously, you know, they lost any shot of the college football playoff, losing to an in-state rival in South Carolina. What was interesting, though, is when you do some reading, Dabo held the meeting on Monday. And what was specifically said in that meeting, we'll, we'll never know, but Dabo indicated it was the first time in nine years. That type of conversation was had with his players. So I, it'll be interesting to see if they get up for this. Um, specific to number, had Clemson and UNC played last week, and I know I've been a little bit higher on Clemson than I think both of you guys, the number would have been 10 for us. So it's like, which which flavor of defeat do you prefer, right? A close loss where your quarterback goes 8 for 29 and your special teams is an abject disaster getting beat by a fourth string quarterback at home. I, I, I kind of still side with the Clemson loss. Now, the other thing here is DJU's on a very short leash from what we're hearing. Brian Brise returned last week from strep throat, only played 15 snaps, should see an increased workload here against UNC. And that's obviously the Achilles heel of North Carolina on both sides of the balls in the trenches. And that's where Clemson's still pretty good. The one matchup on paper where North Carolina has an advantage should be through the air, right? Attacking Clemson secondary. The Tigers have had some some issues in coverage, even with Wiggins kind of growing up in front of our areas there at corner. Clemson's still outside the top 70 in schedule adjusted explosive pass defense. Down to down, Clemson's 35th in passing success rate allowed. And even after these two stinkers back-to-back weeks from UNC, those are the areas of strength for for Drake May, right? You have Josh Downs, you have Antoine Green, you have Bryson Nesbitt, like they're just solid receiver options that can create some mismatches. But in general, if you get good Clemson in this spot, it's a class of defense that North Carolina hasn't faced this season. I mean, we have North Carolina's offensive schedule with an average rank of defensive opponent of, of 71st. So that's where this is interesting for me in this game in that the one area where you just have to be able to attack Clemson and make your hay is through the air. And that's the area where North Carolina has been struggling the last two weeks. And so just very difficult to project. And I, I don't know how much lower we get here 
but we're kind of getting to a point where some sharp guys might have some intrigue with with Clemson, but I just I don't know where this market's heading. And the one thing that we've seen even earlier this year, for as much as Dabo's kind of screwed the pooch here with the coaching staff and not bringing in better guys, you can kind of look over the last handful of years where they've suffered that that loss. They tend to bounce back pretty well. Yeah, they've shown that level of resilience that you've come to expect from a championship pedigree program. The bigger question I have with Clemson outside of DJU looking like he was Chuck Knobloch at second base for extended stretches last week against South Carolina is what the hell Brandon Streeter is doing with this offense. I mean, Will Shipley averaged nearly nine yards per carry, have us 130 yards plus on 15 carries, but only runs it six times in the second half. If Brandon Streeter is going to call plays that way for Clemson offensively, they may as well call in Jason Street from Friday Night Lights and let him orchestrate the offense <laughs> because against this North Carolina defense, they should be able to run it early. They should be able to run yep. it often and get one-on-one coverage on the outside, even with an overrated receiving core that's lacked some true playmakers. I am interested to see with Dabo calling out some of those receivers in terms of their drops and making plays. It's a young room. You now have a chance on a big stage to go out there and assert yourself as a true number one, especially with Bo Collins officially being shelved with that shoulder surgery. With the number though, guys, and I'll open it up to either of you as we sit kind of in no man's land at seven and a half. We think the next move is going to dictate where this game ultimately goes as far as Clemson winning this game going away or if Drake May is able to get over that hump if it goes down to seven. I'm going to bust your balls here and tell you that the hook on seven is quite important. So it's not no man's land, but (laughs) I'm saying it's currently where it opened. It's still in no man's land instead of going to seven or up to 10. You fucking wise ass. Uh, I'm going to let Brad handle this because I kind of hinted if this were to, to get to seven, you might might see a buy so i'm interested to hear his thoughts uh i i concur uh seven i might get there it wouldn't last long uh i think yeah i i don't think a lot of people are interested in it uh, guys that i talk to i i've asked around haven't seen too many people with a you know some not seeing value not a lot of big tickets uh it's too it's a tough handicap to say the least you got to question yeah. both teams mindsets but i can tell you what i'll do if it hits seven i'm betting clemson these are the kind of games that you wonder if you watch a series or two Clemson's fully engaged as you almost feel more inclined to get involved in from a live perspective because if Clemson wants to be there and you can tell from the opening kickoff seven ain't going to be nearly enough if the Tigers want to make a statement and we know how important it is for them to recruit in the Carolinas and what should be a pretty split stadium you would think assuming all Clemson fans haven't grown apathetic with their playoff (laughs) dreams out the window last you totally redeemed yourself there dumb and dumber style Do you know what you've done? The town is eight. I don't even know the exact line. The town is eight miles back uh, yeah, that yeah. way or something along those lines. I haven't seen Dumb and let Dumb. Me, let me ask you boys a question. Is is DJU? He's on the move. Yeah. UCLA's next quarterback? UCLA. Wow. I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard that, but it's an interesting fit to try and take over, um, knowing that DTR is going to have to turn the keys of the car over to someone. Where is DJ from? And uh, I apologize for asking questions. California. Is he? He's a California yeah. kid. Okay. Yep. Yeah. This. This is why I proposed the question. So hey, it's always possible, and you never know. Maybe uh, somewhere else in the Pac-12, they'll be uh, coming knocking. But he is definitely done, in my opinion. After this game, I can't see him staying through a bowl game, knowing the transfer portal opens up shortly thereafter, and it'll be Cade Klubnik. Bra- so, Brad sounds shocked. Who do you think UCLA's next quarterback is? 
Oh, I don't, no, I just had not heard that one yet uh, on DG. Okay. Uh, I've certainly heard him going to the transfer portal. I just hadn't heard UCLA. I was shocked because I hadn't thought of that. Uh, kudos to you okay. for that one because that, that, in a lot of ways that makes some sense. You never know, yeah, Payne. Let's see how this unfolds. The next three weeks are going to be madness. There's another well, hot Was that you or is that you with some inside sources? <laughs> You know, I've I've been known to get a little information. We'll see how it unfolds. I don't know if he's good enough. He throws up another eight for 29. Chip Kelly isn't going to want him. It's a a very good point. Chip Kelly really should go after former Iowa quarterback Alex Padilla, who threw his name into the uh, portal, because I think that's the transcendent (laughs) talent you need to take your program to the next level, especially when you migrate to the Big Ten. Uh, Speaking of the Big Ten, boys, the final game on the schedule, the Big Ten Championship in Indianapolis gives us yet another. I really want to say something there, but I would get canceled immediately but let's <laughs> let's keep us moving <laughs> a, a, another tremendous matchup where east meets west and it's michigan uh, for the second straight year a massive favorite this time taking on purdue michigan a 17 point chalk here total on the game 51 and a half michigan will make their second appearance in the conference championship they obviously beat iowa down last year 42 to 3 they do own 43 big 10 titles the most all time 17 outright titles second only behind ohio state at 24 but they have not won the conference championship outright back-to-back since 1991-92. Purdue will make their maiden voyage to the Big Ten Conference Championship. Their most recent title as a program came back in 2000. The only outright total came back in 1929, and Purdue receives the dubious distinction of becoming the second unranked team to play in the Big Ten Championship, joining only 2012 Wisconsin, and Wisconsin only got there because of postseason bans to Ohio State and Penn State. I give you all of that, Brad, to open this up with Michigan's power rating from where they are now versus where they started this season and how surprised were you with that dominating effort, especially in the second half, going into Columbus and taking Ohio State's lunch? First, when I hear East meets West, I immediately think of Rocky Four. Uh, and the question here is, you know, is <laughs> Purdue Apollo or Rocky? I tend to think they're more on the Apollo <laughs> side here as far as Michigan goes. Yeah, I mean, I was stunned by the second half, to say the least. I mean, that was, I mean, you don't typically in some of the biggest games of the year, you know, you don't see, uh, you know, going into the game what you expected to see. And then for a majority of the first half, even though, you know, there was some surprising uh, play calls on the defensive side for Ohio, uh, for Ohio State. I still felt good with a pre-flop position on Ohio State against Michigan, even at halftime. And then, you know, entirely the flip gets uh, flipped. Uh, the script gets flipped in the second half. I don't know how you don't upgrade Michigan at least a couple points. I mean, to do that without Blake Corum, um, and the uh, majority of the couple point upgrade is we hadn't seen Michigan really test the waters in the vertical passing game. Obviously. They got mission accomplished in that regard. We saw J.J. McCarthy throw it down the field. Uh, they beat cover zero multiple times, and they go in and get their first win in Columbus in, in 22 years and, and do it in dominating fashion in the second half. So since the start of the year, I've upgraded Michigan about five and a half points. I mean, I, I had them fourth at the start of the year. Uh, and even though I've upgraded them five and a half points, I believe it or not, folks, I still would have Michigan an underdog to Ohio State on a neutral field. You don't automatically, you know, change teams' power ratings that significantly off one performance, specifically 30 minutes. But, uh, yeah, I don't know how you can't be impressed with Michigan after that one. 
Yeah, I mean, I think people are always blown away, Brad, when you say things like, well, team A beat team B. That automatically <laughs> means they're better. It is not that simple and straightforward uh, when you do this for a living and you're trying to properly assess these teams. There's no doubt Michigan showed a level of physicality that Ohio State couldn't match. Uh, and Payne, you and I, of course, heavily invested, much like our listeners, in the first half going, what the hell is Jim Knowles doing on the outside? And Cornelius Johnson in super slow motion dances down the sidelines against what should have been a five-star secondary. Uh, but you called out Ohio State, said you didn't see much fight, tenacity, said they pretty much quit in that fourth quarter. When you look at Michigan here, will they have the same success trying to beat down a Purdue defense that, quite frankly, leaves an awful lot to be desired? So, yeah, I mean, listen, the, the Michigan fans were not happy with us, even though we didn't have a, a – I know Brad had some Ohio State. We didn't have Ohio State the side. We had the total, obviously, and we felt really good – at the 728 mark 10 to 3 <laughs> third and 9 at the 31 yard line that we were going to not have three scores in the remainder of that second quarter but that's kind of been How the, about three scores the in the next two and a half minutes that ended up <laughs> ruining my fucking so, Saturday So I think to Brad's point we've we've obviously upgraded Michigan I I think 16 and a half is the right core number but inevitably, like come 8 p.m. Saturday night, betters are going to pile onto Michigan, remembering the beatdown they put on Ohio State last week. And because of that, I, this has a chance to close something like 18. Aiden O'Connell hasn't been with the team. He's with his family mourning the loss of his brother. So that has to be mentioned and factored. And, you know, on the other side of the ball, it's like it just kind of like take nothing away from Michigan, right? They, they forced Ohio State to scream mercy. And once Ohio State got punched back last week, they quit. But I just don't, again, like laying points when the need for margin isn't there. I don't like laying three scores when you're coming off your biggest game and win of the season against your biggest rival. Those typically just don't bode well for me. And we can't forget the fact that Blake Corm and Mike Morris are still both injured. And those are key cogs on each side of the ball. And even Donovan Edwards came in with a cast on his hand last week, hit two explosives. But the man can't catch, right? He can't possess the ball in the proper hand. He literally just ran in a straight line two times. The holes were so large. I mean, he had 2.8 yards per rush on the other 20 carries. And again, like I, I know Michigan fans were happy as heck and let us all know that J.J. McCarthy and the receiver group finally made plays downfield. And maybe that's the confidence that boosts J.J. McCarthy in Michigan to, to making a run here at the national championship. But I don't think for a second... Michigan played possum for 11 games in 23 minutes after trailing to Rutgers and Illinois and suddenly broke out the goods at the seven minute mark of the second quarter at the shoe. Like I just I don't think that happened. And if you dig into the play by play data, Michigan gained 360 yards on five plays. The other 54 offensive snaps, Michigan averaged three yards per play. So they lived on the explosive. And I will be interested to see if they can replicate that. But they're going to have an opportunity here because you kind of, Todd, hinted at the Boilermakers defense. They have uh, given up some explosives through the air. Purdue's outside the top 100 in schedule adjusted yards per pass allowed and explosive pass defense. So this will be kind of that underlying test to see if J.J. and the offense can repeat what they did last week or if it was a little bit of an anomaly and I think you're going to be able to glean if you know some some really good information there once they go into the college football playoffs if they can actually move the ball down the field through the air if it was just this one game sample size really you know like a two and a half quarter sample size I I think this comes down to Purdue's offense you know Jeff Brom damn good offensive mind 
The offense, though, has run extremely hot and cold if you've watched Purdue this season. There's just no in-between. Purdue's going to be playing with a backup center, making his second start. You look past Charlie Jones, there's really not a great downfield threat for Purdue. And in the three games where Purdue's played a defense in Michigan's weight class, it's been flat-out shut down or not exceeded expectations metrically, right? So they played Iowa. They held Purdue to three and a half yards per play at 29% success rate. At Wisconsin, if you remove garbage time, Purdue had 10 points the first 47 minutes. The touchdown drive was 21 yards. The first three quarters, Purdue had a success rate in, in an EPA far below expectation. Even in the Illinois win, that wasn't the most impressive offensive effort either. 37% success rate, 8% explosive play rate, 5.2 yards per play. So I, I don't want to lay points when Michigan doesn't have a need or reason to win by margin, but I, I made the game 16 and a half. That's where we currently sit. I just don't like the matchup for Purdue. I think your hope in games like this most times, right, is, is to shorten them, right? Handfuls of minutes where the game is played 0-0 is awesome when you're taking a dog this large, right? The, the four-minute drive that ends in a punt and pin and flips field position is is a wonderful thing when you're catching three scores. But to do that, you need to be able to run some. You need to pick up third downs. The problem here is Michigan's defense is top five in rushing success rate allowed. Purdue's outside the top 100 in EPA per rush. Purdue's offense is also outside the top 90 in late down success rate, so they struggle to move the chains. So uh, for now, this is this is a pass for me. But if Purdue's offense struggles, and Michigan's still a little beat up on offense, and there really isn't a need for margin, I'm a little surprised we've blown through two key numbers here, 51 and 52, and we're now out to to 52 and a half some places. The lack of disrespect you're showing to Purdue's newfound ground game and what Devin Mockaby has given them with a chance to break the school record for freshman rushing output. And you can beat a player like Markel Jones, who never even got a cup of coffee in the NFL, I think just speaks to how Purdue's offense typically operates. To your point, they're going to have to shorten the contest, take some of the burden of proof off of Aiden O'Connell, especially knowing this is an offensive line. Very likely to get him killed uh, when you look at some of the issues that they could have at center and also off the edge in this particular spot. So a lot of things... Gave up three sacks against Indiana's vaunted uh, defensive <laughs> yeah, line. Yeah, and, and Indiana was doing what they wanted when they wanted in the first half until they lost their quarterback as well against that Purdue defense. Now, Grand Indiana treated it like a bowl game, and you wonder if Michigan sees this more or less as a dress rehearsal since they're old hats now at getting to the Big Ten Championship. But yeah, clearly a tough number to try and navigate through. Uh, and what a lovely championship Saturday we have with two power conferences having title game spreads of 17 or greater. You can follow Brad on Twitter at BradPower7. You can follow Payne there as well at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there. Most importantly, follow the podcast at BetTheBoardPod. And Brad, this is where we put a bow on most things college football for the regular season and obviously championship Saturday. And it goes without saying, can't thank you enough for all your outstanding contributions each and every week. Uh, throughout the course of the season. You've added a fresh perspective here uh, and another voice of reason that I know has made me smarter, it's made Payne smarter, and all of our listeners have greatly appreciated. So can't thank you enough for joining us each and every Wednesday throughout the season. Can't thank you guys enough for having me. I've very much enjoyed the conversations each and every uh, Wednesday here morning. I mean, typically most people would be like, oh, I got to wake up and talk to these guys at 6 in the morning. I got to tell you guys, I, I'm rege- I like it. I look forward to it. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm being totally honest there. 
Give you a little bit of pep. Appreciate in your, that. Give you a little bit of pep in your step. But I do have to ask Brad one last thing. I know was there any other conference championship nugget? Not obviously a pick or anything like that uh, that you're going to be interested to watch uh, as a diehard college football fan on Saturday. Uh, not really. I mean, I, I <laughs> this look. It, it, you mentioned it. It's it's not a very intriguing conference championship uh, weekend. What I will be doing is you know finalizing team bow rigs and stats uh, and getting ready for the bowl announcements the the, the, the very next day that, that is what i'm looking forward to this weekend yeah i think it makes a ton of sense and Payne, it's kind of like what i talked to you about i said normally we sit at our war stations and try and watch the market uh even with a handful of games trying to figure out if there's an angle we haven't uncovered but uh saturday morning instead of being there there's a good chance that i will be at a local watering hole donning my red white and blue more focused on team usa against the netherlands than uh, some of these conference championship games a 6 a.m. drink fest for soccer. Oh. That's interesting. I, I, I do appreciate that we kind of hid things till the end, that this might be the worst conference championship week that I can remember in a long time from both the pizzazz the games bring and also the the value in which these these games provide in the market. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're looking at it, I mean, arguably the most intriguing game is Friday night. And depending on how that goes, there's not much to get sorted out come game day because if USC were to lose, I think it takes a lot of the pressure off TCU if there is any. Granted, they want to win their conference championship, but we probably know who the four playoff combatants are without much to be sorted out. But that is the nature of the beast. But before we let you go, Todd... What's what's your plan there? I mean, Brad, we know is going to be organizing power numbers, getting ready for bowl games. You're going to be at the the USC game. Yes. Your family is diehard USC fans. If they get the win and get into the college football playoff, and then you have to be at the bar by six a.m. Are you going to bed or are you just going all night long? Um, I will not be out partying all night long. I do not live and die with USC football. There's a good chance I will go to the game wearing a UCLA hat, like always, just to kind of uh, troll my significant other. The biggest question: Can you put that in the wash first? Yeah, that I did. I've washed it. A seen couple, better days. You know what? Okay. I've washed it a couple of times. It's the long. <laughs> it's the longest relationship I've had with a piece of clothing, so it's a little bit beat up. But I think the bigger question and challenge pain that I'll have to deal with is trying to figure out where USC could get sent for a college football semifinal uh, and if I'll be making a pilgrimage to Glendale or you know sending the significant other on her own uh, to Atlanta should USC get eviscerated by Georgia in a potential one versus four matchup which one provides you the respite Georgia or Arizona oh I don't think I'm traveling across the country as much as I love my well, that's what I meant yeah as much as I love my brother and sister <laughs> that live in Atlanta I'm not going across the country to see him during uh, bowl games and all that kind of stuff no chance Gotcha, gotcha. So, okay, so you might get like three, four days break. Yeah, you never know. You take advantage when you get your peace and tranquility <laughs> in this business whenever you can find it. All right, Brad, we can go on for a long time. We will let you get uh, to it. Uh, I know you have a, a lot of stuff still ahead of you, but again, thanks as always. Uh, we love the interaction throughout the course of the season. We'll look forward to having you on again for uh, one, maybe two bull podcast previews as well. Look forward to it, guys. You do realize, by the way, Payne, that there is an immense amount of pressure on you when the transfer portal opens up officially on December 5th because you landed a five-star for 2022. I mean, what are you going to do for an encore going forward to allow us to keep our national championship pedigree? I don't know what you're talking about. You brought Brad in. He was a huge addition to the Bet the Board team. I mean, at this rate, you're getting, we may have to find somebody else to try and bring in. We'll see what happens. Got to navigate the waters, make sure it's a good brand fit and... Obviously, our loyal listeners know we've been around since 2014. Brad's the only gambling guy 
that we've had on for multiple podcasts, right? We've had former players on, we've had guys do guest appearances that were, that were better as we've had females on the podcast to help with horse racing and things of that. But Brad's the very first guy that we've had in the fold. That's a better first that's done multiple shows. And I think it's, it's been a wild success. And obviously he's, he's helped us a great amount is non power fives game or been absolutely killing it. I believe nine, three and one. So he's elevated the room. And then of course, the other things we've done, right? I know this is a college football podcast and there's been some weeks where Billy has taken off, but the articles on the website of the line moves, believe those are six and one as well. So finding the right fits, finding the sharpest guys. And if they're on board with us, it means we've vetted them. It means that they're long-term winners and we'll continue to find guys like that and potentially add them into the bet the board fold. Definitely the name of the game. It takes a lot to get the Bet the Board branded stamp of approval. And Brad has far exceeded expectations uh, as there are very few that come anywhere close to his level of expertise and knowledge in the college football arena. We do have one final order of business to try and sort out around these parts, my good man. And while it may not be the most attractive slate, hopefully you've been able to identify at least one avenue of opportunity as it pertains to our best investment. Tough week. Obviously, the board, as we've kind of alluded to, is stinks. And there are some things out there, but they are best waiting on, I think, because there's going to be some some market movement that make those a little bit more valuable and attractive. The one thing I know you and I have discussed a little bit, and we broke this game down a little earlier, so it'll be time stamped above. Let's gravitate towards the SEC championship game here. Again, it's not a good sign that Jaden Daniels is in a walking boot early in this week. And if any ounce of Jaden Daniels isn't 100% healthy, the mobility is really his best attribute. And I think when you're facing a defense like Georgia, you have to have all your faculties. And again, I think there's some interesting elements that we discussed at length. So listen to that above its timestamp. But there's some elements here with Kirby Smart likely having the right blueprint and knowing what to do defensively based upon what Alabama did and did not do. I think there's an ability here for Georgia's offense to to run the ball and really negate the best attribute of LSU's defense, which is its pass rush. If you keep those guys in standard downs and non-pass rush situations, you're going to fare quite well there. And even when LSU gets those opportunities to get after the quarterback, we know Stetson Bennett's been pressured on just 17% of the dropbacks, gets the ball out on time, has an all-world offensive line. So I think you're going to see a situation here where George is able to run the ball. When Todd Munkin decides to dial up pass on early downs, we're going to see some advantageous situations there for Georgia as well. But the one hindrance here that we've discussed, there's really not a reason for Georgia to get out and create margin. I don't necessarily want to be laying three scores in a game where, hey, you know, Georgia's dominated. They're up 21 or 24 late and we get backdoored. So I want to play Georgia in the first half here. It's vital that you get to this number as quickly as possible because there's a bunch of nine and a half out there. It's split between the two. Pinnacle, DraftKings, FanDuel, Jazz, you name it, has nine and a half in the first half. We'll call it minus 115. It's a little bit cheaper at Pinnacle as well. So Georgia Bulldogs, first half, minus nine and a half, minus 15 cents, we'll call it as the the best bet for this podcast Todd, I know you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting in terms of the vibe from Georgia this week, because the the mindset is, hey, we're already in the college football playoff. We don't necessarily need to create margin. We don't necessarily even need to win this game. 
However, you uncovered some things there with some some great reading that that make a world of sense as well for the Georgia Bulldogs. Yeah, you don't hate the fact that Georgia says this is the one thing missing from everything that they've been able to accomplish over the last couple of seasons. Uh, they're going to play here most likely as the number one overall seed in the college football playoff as well. They'll be right back in this building on New Year's Eve, the same spot where they started the campaign with a dominant win against Oregon. And when it comes from one of your best players, an emerging leader and playmaker in Kenny McIntosh, it definitely resonates. So I look for Georgia to be buttoned up in the wake of two rather lethargic efforts against Kentucky and Georgia Tech, albeit both in wins, but this is a chance to make a statement, and I think it also goes a long way in recruiting on top of everything else to announce that LSU may have arrived, and they may be one of the biggest thorns in Georgia's side going forward, but at least for now, the road to the SEC still runs through Athens and everything that Kirby Smart has built. One other thing, Payne, that I uncovered that doesn't necessarily impact this handicap a ton, but I found it entertaining, Najee Harris, in the wake of the Pittsburgh Steelers win on Monday Night Football address the Georgia-Alabama rivalry and describe Georgia's weak-ass national championship last year. I can only imagine what it's like in that locker room if Najee and George Pickens are going back and forth and you can tell that Alabama not exactly thrilled with starting to play second fiddle behind the uh, dynasty at least what's in process in progress I should say for what Kirby's got going on there with the red and black between the hedges. That's interesting. So refresh my memory because I'm forgetful. Georgia hasn't won the SEC championship game in how many years? Uh, they haven't won it over the last three years that they've been okay. th- that they've been in the game. Wow. So it's been so a little bit of a different dynamic. So that's why added emphasis here. Yep. So last year against Alabama, they got things taken care of. I mean, back in 2019, they ran into a buzzsaw LSU team. And then the one in the middle, I, I want to say was... Auburn, but I don't remember exactly. I don't have uh, all my notes in front of me, but yeah, that surprised me as well for everything that they've been able to do, and they haven't necessarily needed to win the conference championship to go to the playoffs, so let's see what we get, especially a complete effort in the first half. The Jaden Daniels injury, kind of just the cherry on top. If he's at all limited, we know LSU will struggle to move the football. Uh, again, right, time stamped above. You even get Brad's thoughts on the, the Georgia-LSU game as well, so I would, I would go back, listen to that. It was probably 10, 12, 14 minutes long. There's also some interesting stuff there where we divulged about LSU's schedule and how we think it might be a little a little fraudulent so yep every everything is contained and uh now we can focus on, on the National Football League with college football more or less in the rear view after championship Saturday a bunch of bowl games that have been really profitable for us and we'll look forward to passing along any of those early games that we think people have to move on maybe as early as next week when we do our NFL podcast yep sounds good Anything else you'd like to share, my friend? That's everything. Football tomorrow. When I say football, NFL, I'm looking forward to tomorrow's card that we're going to break down. It's one of the best NFL cards we've had in a long time. Yeah, first time in a while. The only disappointing thing is that the NFL did not elect to flex the 49ers-Dolphins into prime time, but we know... Cowboys, even if they were to play high school in the state of Texas, trump all as far as NFL networks are concerned. But for Brad Powers, you can follow him on Twitter at Brad Powers 7 You can follow Payne there at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. Follow me on Twitter. Most importantly, as always, follow the podcast at Bet the Board Pod. And with a Georgia Bulldogs first half ticket in hand come Saturday afternoon, we'll see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amex slash you know.